Where's that book over there? Right? Okay, so there's Alaska. Where are we? <laughs> Where are we here? We are right about right there. there. And St. George is about there. So the Aleutians are the islands of the Aleus or the Unungan. That's a lot more than are really out there. Um, Kodiak Island is right there. Seattle is down that way. Okay, so... Um, Where is Sea Otter Island? Sea Otter Island. Is there an Otter Island here? Isn't that Otter Island just south of here? Yeah. So Otter Island is about right there. It's tiny little. Okay, so... Anybody want to guess what kind of animal this is? Sea Otter. Sea Otter, that's right. Okay, so um, how many of you have ever seen a real live sea otter at like in Anchorage? No. Zoe has. I know. I know where yeah. I saw it. Did you guys know that they used to live here too? Hundred yeah. years ago. At sea, why do you think they named it Sea Otter Island? Because there were lots of them. Because there were lots of them there. That's right. Who told you this? Dave. Dave. Yeah. So. Sea otters used to live here, and today there are still sea otters that live all in here, all down that way into Russia, and all the way that way down to California. You mean Seattle? Oh, past Seattle. Seattle is in Washington. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Haddock. For one week each year, the tiny island of St. Paul holds its annual Bering Sea Days. It's a celebration of the local biology and ecology, and a week of experimental learning and activities for the K-12 students on the island. Scientists from the Alaska Fisheries, Science Center, and Regional Office come to the region known as the Pribilof Islands. The program, developed by the Aleut community of St. Paul Island Tribal Government and St. Paul School, opens up kids to learning about one of the most magical biological regions on Earth, their own backyard. We start with scientist David Rosen. I'm a Canadian scientist, and I studied on the east coast of Canada, Arctic marine mammals, and then I moved to the west coast of Canada and started working with mammals on the west coast, including in Alaska. I have been involved in Bering Sea Days for seven or eight years. Um, eight years ago, I was part of a research group that came up and got some northern fur seals from St. Paul Island and brought them back to my research facility in Vancouver, Canada. And since then, we've been involved with the school groups up here and in Bering Sea Days. My part in Bering Sea Days has been as a video link um, that we do every year between St. Paul Island and the lab in Vancouver. And up till now, I've always been stuck in Vancouver. And this year, I get to come up to St. Paul and do the St. Paul side, which I'm really excited about. I think that kids on St. Paul's know that there are scientists doing research with the animals on St. Paul's, but they don't really get to see that. And they also know that these Canadians came up and we have some of the St. Paul animals and they kind of lose touch with what's happening with them. So it's a reconnection between the kids of St. Paul's and the sea lions. So they get to see that these animals were brought and they're well 
brought down and they're well taken care of and they're doing active research and we explain the research to the kids of what we're doing to try to figure out what's happening to the animals on St. Paul's. My favorite part of the Bering Sea Days is probably how excited the kids I can, are. If I close my eyes or turn the lights off, I could use sounds to hear where you guys are. Because Pierce just made noise. If he was a fish, I'd eat him. So I know where he is. But sometimes things don't make enough sound or the environment, like rocks and kelp, don't make sound. So some animals make their own sound and they listen to the echoes. Echolocation. It's called echolocation. Has anyone heard that word before? Yeah. 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 Whales use it. Let, sorry? Whales use it. That's right. What else? What, what, what's another animal that doesn't live in the ocean? As an educator, I'm always worried that I'll walk into a classroom and there'll just be a sea of sort of grumpy faces staring at me doing something exciting. And the kids here are so fun to work with. Anything we think up of, they're just like all into it. I think every time we talk to the kids in the classroom, they always come up with ways of thinking of things that we as scientists or as adults never think of. Because they're wide open to any possibility or any experience, they come up with these wild ideas. And quite often they're wild ideas. As a scientist, they make me stop and think, I've never thought of it that way before. And it, it actually educates me as much as I'm trying to educate them. Great. How has your Bering Sea Days experience shaped your job or career or you know, experiences after? Most of my time working with Northern Fur Seals has been sort of in a laboratory setting with, with these animals. from, And I tend to forget two things. One, what their natural environment is like. So it's great coming back to St. Paul and going, right, this is what conditions are like on a rookery. But the other thing is we tend to think of like populations and happening to populations and we forget how important the individual animals are to the people of St. Paul. And so we're not working towards some theoretical concept really of saving a species it's keeping an ecosystem intact that's important to the people that live on this island i think i think for the kids it's a great opportunity to do special activities and interact with a new group of educators and i think it's always fun to do something different out of the classroom and uh, we try to make the activities as fun as possible, but also for the kids to learn something. But I think we like to sneak in the learning. And and we have the opportunity to do that because, you know, we're up here for a short period of time. We have lots of time to, to prep for the lessons. And I think it, it just sort of reinvigorates the kids as well as ourselves. We dissected fish. And what did you learn? We learned what otoliths are. Ooh, what are otoliths? They're part of a fish. Well, they're ears. Fish ears. Nice. And what's your favorite part of Bering Sea Days? Learning a lot of stuff. All right. And can you think of something from a previous Bering Sea Days in the past that really sticks out in your mind? In the past? Yeah, it's something in the past. An, a favorite memory or a fun activity from Bering Sea Days. Ooh, learning about first seals. All right. My name is Lauren Devine, and I'm the co-director for the ecosystem conservation for the tribal government of St. Paul. 
So the Ecosystem Conservation Office was started in the late 90s by two of my predecessors, one being Aquilina Lessenkoff, and the other is her husband, Phil Zavadil. And these two individuals knew that there were issues going on that were dealing with subsistence resources, that were dealing with a lot of the wildlife on St. Paul, and that the tribal members weren't really Uh, didn't have an avenue or a voice in voicing some of their concerns with subsistence access, resources, uh, populations. And so they created the Ecosystem Conservation Office to set up a formal kind of monitoring system, a way to give some legitimacy and some authority to the tribal members um, to talk to federal government, state agencies, different regulatory bodies on issues that concern them. So now Ecosystem Conservation Office is uh, a group. We have about five full-time staff members. We do a lot of environmental monitoring. We do a lot of wildlife management, and we work with scientific research, with education outreach, with communicating with our Uh, tribal members on various environmental issues, climate change issues, subsistence resource issues. And um, we go and represent our community with federal and state agencies. St. Paul is one of the five Pribilof Islands. There's two inhabited Pribilof Islands in the middle of the Bering Sea. So we're about 700 miles from Anchorage. You can only get here by flying or by taking a vessel. Uh, We are about 300 miles north of the Aleutian chain in Alaska, and we're literally in the middle of the Bering Sea. And so St. Paul is the larger of the two Pribilof Islands that are inhabited. St. George has about 60, 65 people um, that live on that island, and they're about 45 miles south of us. And then St. Paul has about 400 full-time residents. We're about 40, 45 square kilometer uh, size island, and we are home to... Uh, halibut, halibut fishermen, um, a lot of the community are local fishermen and they live a mixed subsistence and cash economy kind of lifestyle. Uh, so we are very remote, we're very rural, uh, and we're home to half the world's breeding population of fur seals. We have stellar sea lions uh, that breed around the islands and um, occur around here. We have reindeer that live on the island and we have lots of fish and shellfish species. Um, being in the middle of the Bering Sea, we have salmon and pollock and cod and halibut and uh, king crab and snow crab. And so we're just kind of this in the middle of the ocean, uh, very rich with wildlife, little Alaskan community. A lot of things make St. Paul unique. Um, being that it's an island in the middle of the ocean, um, we're kind of situated in this position in the ocean that is very productive, that is um, kind of a refuge for a lot of birds that migrate long ways, a lot of animals that migrate, you know, long distances. And so there is the food and the resources that lots of different species need that occur right outside our doors because of where we are in the ocean and where we are uh, in Alaska. Uh, you know, there's lots of currents that that work that bring food and, you know, resources in that uh, blow different species through on storms. Um, there's there's lots of activity out here in the Bering Sea that causes such a rich ecosystem. So being that we are in the middle of the Bering Sea and that we have all of these resources, we have lots of wildlife, we have rich commercial fisheries, we have rich subsistence 
fisheries. We have uh, all of these very important marine mammals that come through, seabirds that breed here and utilize the islands. Um, we do have just a unique landmass and marine ecosystem combination that it was really important for folks in the community to get as much information about all of the resources that they rely on and that they relate to culturally uh, and know kind of the science behind things and understand what opportunities they have in being good stewards of their environment, uh, what kind of scientific basis there is for that. And, you know, if you're using seabird colonies as a cultural resource, what do you need to know about, you know, your potential impacts or a changing environment? What kind of impacts are going to be important for you being able to conserve that species uh, and to be a good steward of that species? Bigger males that can dive that deep. So do we, you guys know what sea otters eat? They do eat sea urchins. Where do where do you find urchins? Are they in the water column, seafloor? They're in kelp forest, but they're on the seafloor. And so otters dive to the seafloor, and they can excavate clams and they eat all kinds of invertebrates. Now we're in our 10th year of Bering Sea Days, but in the beginning it was kind of an introduction of the ecosystem of the marine ecosystem to our school age children. So the, it started with just a couple of presenters and they were scientists in the field. They had been conducting Bering Sea research on some of the species out here in St. Paul and St. George. And so they we asked them to come into the classroom and spend a week really diving in deep and getting the kids to have a deeper understanding of some of these issues some of the different pieces of the ecosystem. It's really complex and it's not something that can be taught just one time and folks understand it. And so it was a way to engage kids in learning about their uh, abilities to be good stewards of the environment, to gain a broader scientific understanding of some of the issues that impact them and to just engage in more two-way communication between scientists and our students. I think it's incredibly successful and it's something that continues to evolve. And I think a lot of success comes in learning and adapting from previous years and letting it evolve and become its own thing each year. You're coming up with activities for them or taking them on a field trip or doing some kind of scientific experiment or uh, demonstrations. There's a variety of things that go on. And so at any given time, uh, Monday through Friday, the full week of classes that teachers hand over their classrooms for us, uh, we have lots of different people going in lots of different classrooms and doing activities, doing those experiments. Um, every classroom within the school will have something different going on at any given hour uh, for the entire school day. And so the purpose of that is to get the kids as much exposure as we can to all of these different fields, all of these different disciplines, uh, a variety of, you know, more intense kind of hands-on, let's, let's build a deeper understanding of a system or a process by getting the kids to really critically think and use um, resources in a science room versus, you know, sometimes we have critical thinking where students are thinking through a problem. We're giving them resources to read uh, and think about, and then we ask them to help us solve problems. 
So the funding comes primarily from Central Bering Sea Fishermen's Association, which is our local group of fishermen. It is the you know fathers and sons and uncles of the community that have created a, an organized fishing association. And there are halibut fishermen and the profits, some of the profits that they make from their business, um, you know, selling halibut every year, they choose to fund this program. We also have a really strong partnership with Trident Seafoods. Because it is something that the kids are so excited about every year, the community is really excited about it as well. Because if you get the kids excited, you know, the parents are excited and the elders are excited. And we've seen an improvement in our kids' standardized test scores through this kind of programming that we deliver. Anytime the kids are excited, it's easy to get the rest of the community on board. For me, every year that I walk into a classroom and it's Monday morning and the kids are, you know, getting ready to start bearing sea days and they come up to different presenters and they start talking about what they did last year with that presenter or they share stories of last year. I remember when we went out on this field trip, are we going to do something like that this year? And they remember very detailed things from years before. And it's really rewarding, it, even a kindergartner or a first grader, that they retain that information for that long. It's very rewarding. And a lot of our presenters are really excited when they come in. And even being a first-time presenter, when you come in and you present this information at the end of the week, the kids remember. A lot of our presenters end up maintaining contact with some of our classrooms. And so we do see success in folks being able to take away something from the school or uh, take away a partnership that is with the school where they can Google chat in or they can pen pal or have some kind of lesson development and follow up with kids in the classroom or be able to take what they do here and present that out, whether it's a conference or a workshop or, you know, an educators type um, sharing out informational session where they share about Bering Sea Days. And we've gotten contacted, you know, a few times on and and helped consult on how to start a summer camp program or a school educational program. How do you do this kind of work on a smaller scale, on a similar scale? And how do we continue to build partnerships so that we can grow what we do here, but then also contribute to new programs? Zoe, do you want to be a hearing? You want to be one before? No? Okay. Yeah. Anybody want to be a hearing? I want to be a salmon. Okay. We're going to have a lot of salmon. I want to be a hearing. <laughs> I want to be a hearing. Okay. You stay as a hearing. Jason. Putting on a good educational program in an urban location, there are things like hardware stores and... Um, you know, resources, you have internet, you have travel, you have airports, you have, you know, a place to rent a taxi or rent a vehicle to get places. So the very basic things that we think about, where are you going to sleep at night? Where are you going to house these presenters? Where are you going to, um, you know, how are they going to get there? How are you going to feed them? All of those kinds of things get exponentially harder and more challenging in remote locations because we don't have infrastructure. Some villages don't have internet. Some certainly don't have, you know, computers in every classroom. And there it's very basic things that a lot of remote villages in Alaska lack that presenters or scientists or educators will 
take for granted. Even if things don't go the way that we plan, and even if everything kind of goes wrong, those students don't know the backstory. They don't know the plan. They don't know what it was supposed to be or what grandiose ideas, you know, we had in our heads of what this event would be. They get something out of it. And when you see that and you see a light bulb or you see smiles and engagement on their faces and they're asking questions and you know that presenters leave or scientists leave and they stay in touch with those kids, it makes all of the challenges and all of the, you know, heartache that we go through planning these kinds of events makes it all worth it for sure. And it is something that we want other communities to experience. We want other kids in other places to enjoy that and have that engagement and that love of learning. We want to, you know, ignite that in other locations. And so it is hard and it's slow to get off the ground. And we work for years to build various, even, you know, day special event or summer camps or, you know, a few days, we'll take whatever we can get. And I think there's a lot of people in different communities that are working towards that. I spent a lot of time my first year in very young classrooms in kindergarten, first grade, second grade classrooms. And I am a crab biologist. So I was teaching them very basics of crab biology. And I had a costume on and I went through and we did body parts, but we were scientists, right? So they would call the crab shell the shell. And I would say it is a crab shell, but we're going to think of it as a carapace. So I'm introducing these more technical vocabulary words um, that we would use in an academic setting. Or, you know, if we're measuring a crab, we're going to measure it by the carapace width. We're not going to call it the shell. And so we worked all week and I would quiz them every day on these terms. And that was, you know, for four years ago now. And so I go back in the classroom and this year I got to go back in and teach more about crabs. And what do you know, the class that we're in are now these kids four years later, and I don't even have to prompt them on what to call different parts of the crab. They already have all the vocabulary and they have remembered it. I remember when you came in to our kindergarten class and you were dressed up like a crab and you taught us these words and your costume, you were a blue king crab. They remember everything about it. I was wearing a blue king crab costume and they remember all of the terms that we talked about. And I made them stand up and make the, you know, figures and I made them do eye stalks. And so they remember that eye stalks are what we call crab eyes because they're on stalks and why crabs have eye stalks rather than just being, you know, in their head like we have because they want to hide from predators. So they might bury themselves and then they can stick their eyes up and look around. I mean, they can remember such detail that it's so rewarding to know they're applying something from years ago when they were very small and I underestimated them in how much they would retain. And now we're starting and they are phenomenal using the language that I want them to use, using those vocabulary words, and they don't even have to be prompted. Bering Sea Days, as it is now, uh, has grown so much that we're kind of at a maintaining level. So we want to refine what we're doing. We want to make sure that we are being as effective as we want to be and that we continue to be able to introduce new things, but also build on uh, things that the students have been learning. So we have 
folks that come back every year. And then we also introduce new folks every year. So we're really happy with where we're at. And as long as we continue to adapt and overcome our challenges and deliver really good programming, we're really happy with uh, what we're doing. Now we want to help other people. We want, we would love to see more programs like this across the state outside of Alaska. We would love to see exchange. Uh, we've been working with Unalaska, another community that's in the Aleutian Islands that shares a lot of the same ancestry, the same family groups, the same culture. And we would like to be able to have students travel between the islands and participate. So if we get some kind of event going in the Aleutian Islands that is more centric to that location um, and help them build up a kind of educational program like we have in Bering Sea Days, the, the ultimate goal is to really get students to move um, across the state and be able to move as students, but also as special presenters and take something into other communities. Uh, we would love to see something on the North Slope. We would love to see stuff out in Western Alaska. Anything um, more, just more rigorous education and outreach that's driven by the community for the community. So what we want to do is show the interconnectivity between science, policy, you know, all of these different things that as somebody living in a community and living the kind of lifestyle that we live out here, it's it's all interconnected and it's all interwoven. And to be able to um, introduce things and show different perspectives in a kind of seamless way, it does. It provides a forum for folks to think about the political ramifications or the political undertones of various regulations of different how laws were made, how why things are the way they are now um, and how folks use that and are informed by that and also kind of how they adapt and how life out here and and what understanding folks draw from the ecosystem has to do with all of those different pieces. How does that look different from this guy? Way different because it's way smaller. It's smaller? What else about the shape is different? And whenever you do this, you can Going see this, table, this you know? the backbone. You can see his backbone? Yeah, in the middle. Oh, cool. Can, cool. I, look at that. can I cut open the squid? My name is Dallas Roberts, and I work at the greenhouse here on St. Pond. We have anywhere from strawberries to cherry tomatoes to hot peppers to basil to lettuce. When you were a student in Bering Sea Days, did you ever think you would come <laughs> back and be a presenter? I did not. I thought I was going to do, um, I not actually, I don't even know what I was going to do, but um, so I'm in college and I'm working towards uh, a bachelor's in health and science. So I figured I'd be out in school right now. But I am taking two online classes, so I didn't really think I was going to come back and teach a class on, for Greenhouse. I mean, for us, it's really a concern about produce and stuff. And if it is for other communities, I think they really need to, <clears throat> like, talk to their entities and talk, maybe get a couple of people to start, you know, planning, you know, maybe even get a, a building or something. Um it was definitely hard for us to get a greenhouse. I think it's, I think students and younger students need to learn um, about Bering Sea Days. It's something that I think should keep on going on. And for other, you know, communities that don't have it should 
take part in it. So, so far at Bering Sea Days, have you guys talked about marine? Have you guys talked about seals? No? Did you talk about the ocean any? None? Did you talk about any of those things this week? I imagine that you did. Yeah? I made a boat. You made a boat. That was a fun activity, huh? You guys all helped make boats. And so the things. My that... background in my job is I am a zooarchaeologist. I work with animal bones that come from archaeological sites, mostly in the North Pacific. I also, though, spend a lot of time working with modern samples as a way to help me better understand what the significance of the ancient remains is. My current position is affiliate research faculty at Western Washington University. My first Bering Sea Days was in 2013. I've been working with a lot of different educators here in St. Paul for a very long time. Uh, I've worked with Aqualina a lot over the years and was able to finally uh, kind of weasel an invitation to come back out and work with the kids again. I think my favorite part of Bering Sea Days is we, we as scientists who work also in education, don't really expect all of the kids to get as excited uh, as the things that we're studying as we get about the things that we're studying. But if just one kid gets a little glimmer of excitement about any little thing, that makes my day. That, that makes my year. Very first summer out here, I was talking with Aqualina, and we were trying to decide, well, what, you know, what kind of bones type activity could we do? And she just kind of casually said, well, why don't you guys dig up the killer whale we buried a couple of years ago? And after I picked my jaw up off of the ground and composed myself, I said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Why, why don't we dig up that orca skeleton? Because whoever gets a chance to dig, dig up an orca skeleton. And so we dug that up in 2013 and have spent the last actually three years re-articulating that skeleton to hang in the library. So now that I've been consistently involved with Bering Sea Days, I have in my mind pretty much any time I'm working with any kind of skeletal material, any kind of bones, um, how, how could I use this in a classroom experience to help some young student get excited about bones? Um, it doesn't always work. Sometimes I'll try something in a classroom and the students are like, meh. Other times, um, there's just too much stuff, too many different aspects of it. Um, but pretty much any time I'm working with any skeletal material with my job, I try to think about, would this be exciting or interesting to have in a classroom setting for kids of any age, whether it's the pre-K kids or all the way up to seniors in high school or college students. You know, I go back and forth on what I think the kids get out of Bering Sea Day. Sometimes I think not to be too cynical, but I think that they really like a break from just regular classroom everyday activities. But I think that there's been a lot more continuity now from year to year with who's coming. So the stu we're starting to get to know the students better and the students are getting to know us better. And so there's this level of anticipation of, hey, we get to do cool fish dissections with Veronica or Mike the Bones guy is gonna be here again and maybe we'll get to cut up some teeth. And so it's gotten to be consistent enough, even if it's not the exact same scientists every year, but the kids know now to expect Bering Sea Days is going to be super cool. Keep our hat warm. I forgot. We need that. <laughs> Got to keep our whole body warm. <laughs> okay. So what we've got, what we've got are goggles. 
I think you might want to see it. Jason, you got to stay still. You're going to trip over your own flippers. Okay. So you got a big head, Jason. I think it's the hat. Okay, there you go. You don't have to put it over your eyes if you don't want to. What about his front flippers? Okay. Well, that's a good question. What about his front flippers? They're going to get cold. They are going to get cold. This is an excellent question. Have you ever seen a flipper of a fur seal? Yeah. Yeah. Does it have a lot of fur on it? No. Aren't you worried about it getting cold? It gets blubber. It doesn't have blubber. But let's think about it this way. That's a good guess, though. Let's say our My name is Apolina Lesnikov, and I uh, direct the Office of Cultural Affairs for the Audi community of St. Paul Island. In our language, Tanakh Unarim Makasingin. We have on St. Paul Island probably a dozen fluent speakers, four of which we work with, and we have a bunch of fluent listeners, people that understand it but don't speak it. Uh, so what we're doing right now is we are slurping. We call it slurping. We speak to learn, we listen to understand, and we read in order to pronounce it because we're so fortunate that we have a language that has, um, it's, it's been given an alphabet. And um, it's not the best. It's a little complicated. It's not, um, um, it's not easy to write it. But we don't have a lot of listening materials. Um, so basically, we try to capture uh, fluent speakers in order to have something to listen to on a daily basis. Basis. We've been writing lessons, writing a curriculum that um, gives the colleagues that I work with, mostly teens at this point, teenagers, um, giving them the ability to teach it because we say, if you become fluent, if I became fluent um, and I had no one to speak to, what's the purpose of learning the language on, by myself? So it's a team effort and so that we can have each other to talk to as uh, time progresses. And giving them and myself an ability to teach it is quite important. The one thing that I think about in regards to where I live, where I presently am right now, um, is some people might say, oh, that's in the middle of nowhere. But I don't think we should uh, use that phrase for any place on this planet because every place on this planet matters and has something to give to its whole. Uh, right now, I'm in the Bering Sea. Uh, I don't want to say smack dab in the middle of the Bering Sea, but just about. Uh, north of the Aleutian Islands, between Russia and mainland Alaska. Very, very sea-ocean-influenced uh, society and culture that I come from. The Pribilof Islands were not inhabited at the time of contact, whatever that means. <laughs> when the uh, Russians came to the Aleutian Islands, they came west to east towards Alaska. And uh, with them, they brought this uh, need for, for money. And so furs were the thing at the time. The fur rush happened in the Aleutians, specifically with sea otter. Uh, and um, our people, we come from the Pribilof Island. I mean, we come from the Aleutian Islands originally. 
our ancestors were brought from the Aleutian Islands to the Pribilof Islands to be that labor force. It was forced. It was not like we said, oh yeah, let's go up there and let's uh, kill all the seals for their furs, for people to wear fur coats. If I feel like if I lock it in saying that uh, it was uh, it was slave labor, but we had to come because I think if we didn't, there wouldn't be fur seals here right now, or they would have drastically been depleted uh, to a state of even uh, a more dire situation than they are right now. How we got here may have been in the form of slavery. Um, why we had to stay was because we are of this sea culture uh, on the islands for 8,000 years. We know the other creatures that live in that environment, the people that came to kill the seals for their furs, they did not. So throughout the period of time when we came, we had people standing up for the fur seal saying, you can't just kill all of them. Pelagic sealing was happening at the time. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not what we do. First, we really should only take what we eat. That's how it's always been. And here we have all of these people coming into the Pupilof Islands and they're taking not just what they eat. They're taking it in order to sell the furs and leaving all this food. So when I look back at that, I, it's just had to hurt. It had to hurt our people to see that happening. Um, they went on strike. They said, we're not killing these seals for you if you're just killing any of them or killing all of them. There has to be a method to this so it's sustainable. Um, so all of that, all of those practices came from Unangan people in order to have a sustainable harvest. It's something that we knew. It's, it's something that we were born from. It's something that we practiced for thousands of years. And I think in turn, if I went to some other part of this planet, I'm not going to come in and take resources because I don't understand how it works in that ecology. If there are humans there that understand it, they are the ones that they, they are the ones that they are, they're the experts. And so we were the experts and we had to be here and we had to be a part of that whole history as difficult as it was uh, in order to have the first seals that we have today. When the Russian navigator, uh, Pribilov, came here, it's not that we hadn't been here before. Unangan had been here before. We had stories of uh, Tanakh Amich, uh, which was our name for uh, this island, St. Paul Island. When you look at Unangan on the Aleutian Islands, uh, they were pretty nomadic between the islands, being able to uh, jump in their uh, their uh, their boat and go to another village. The Pribilof Islands are a little bit further away, and so it wasn't really economical to establish villages here at that time. But we didn't just come here once; we came here more than once, according to our stories. And so when Pribilof discovered uh, the Pribilof Islands, uh, it's not that we didn't know about it before. So for my family, there's, of course, you know, everything is, uh, it's not easy in, on, on a straight and narrow path. My 
uh, family has been here. I think I am the one, two, three, I'm the fourth generation of the Lestenkopf family. Now I have my grandmother's and um, there's my mom's family. So it's all very different and and varied with uh, the number of generations of my own family that have been on the on the Pribilof Islands. So when we came to the Pribilof Islands, we brought with us uh, knowledge of the uh, the Aleutian Islands environment. Uh, we actually probably kept the Russians alive. Like when someone from Unalaska said that, you know, the Russians were getting sick, and so we were giving them our plants and helping them to become well. And then he said, maybe we shouldn't have. <laughs> I have lived here all of my life, and at that time it was just over three decades, and I did not even understand these regulations that supposedly were imposed on me um, as a member of this community, and I thought, I, I need to learn about this, because the children need to learn about this too, especially with everything that's happening, personal entanglement, uh, less... Uh, our people were eating less from the sea and more from the store. And one of those boys happened to be my son. So I basically reached out to the marine mammal researchers that were on island at the time. Who were the uh, front, the trailblazers for the federal government? They were really the only face that we had to talk to that was present. Marine biologist, Versil, doing... Uh, pup work, uh, doing disentanglement, etc., and said, tell me what you do because uh, I need to figure out how to have these young people know what those regulations are and not get in trouble because I was hearing things like $5,000 fine, five years in prison, um, and it sort of opened my eyes to this disconnect that here we are, United States citizens, it's almost like uh, the wool had been put over our eyes, and people were living in the story of the emperor, and the emperor was naked. I realized if we are to uh, take care of everything that has taken care of us, everything in this environment, uh, the Bering Sea, then we needed to have people that were equipped to do that. And there wasn't really any young person that was going into the environmental uh, field. There wasn't uh, a, an organization that had an environmental program. And at the time, I was a school librarian. And I just sort of dropped all of that and went into this realm of the environment and had... Yeah, jokes like tree hugger or fish kisser was one of them. And it was so bizarre. It's like here I was, this person who was working with books in a school, to needing to go outdoors because I also saw that our children, they were not going to the harvest, the fur seal harvest. They were not knowing the names of places on the island. They had never been beyond those gates that the United States government puts up to blockade the um, the first seal rookeries from trespassing. And somehow all of that had me just, oh gosh, there's just like this great big disconnect. I had never been in my 30s beyond a gate um, to look at fur seals in my life. 
before I was in my 30s. And there were so many people here and children that didn't have that opportunity. And it's it was the researchers that were able, they had the permit to go and and uh, do the research work, pub sharing, um, et cetera. And I wanted to see that. And I started to see that. And that sort of led to bringing in young folks at the time, one of them, Pamela Lesnikoff, who now co-directs the Ecosystem Conservation Office, was a teenager at the time, and we pulled her in uh, among some others and had them working with researchers and doing um, helping them with their studies. And uh, from that, it was like, now there's no office here. If Pamela grows up to become a, a marine mammal researcher of sorts, um, where is she going to work? Is she going to live in Seattle? Is that beneficial? And so this began the Ecosystem Conservation Office with the Alley community of St. Paul Island in the 90s, in the late 90s. So now we had a place for young people to strut their stuff if they decided to go into the environmental field. Uh, so I think as we forget as humans that we are very much a part of the environment, very important to it, and by staying put, um, you really uh, have a global effect when you stay put. I don't know, you have to sort of like live up to your name, right? Tanach, Amich, Amich, mother's brother. And in our culture, the mother's brother played an important role with um, the next generation. They were the ones that reared the, ki- the children. The mother's brother more so than uh, the father. So it was believed that um, a father's love might get in the way of um, the children um, venturing into uh, the world of survival, paddling out to sea in a single hatch kayak in order to bring fish back. Um, uh, a mother's brother was more likely to uh, keep on the, the next generation and in order for the survival of the whole, where a father might say, oh no, my poor little loved one, I don't want you to go into danger. So Amich, mother's brother, it's almost like a, we have to live up to that name. I'm very fortunate to be a part of that story for one thing. Secondly, to have worked with people that are willing to be those trailblazers in doing such things as uh, developing an ecosystem conservation office that's uh, tr- that's tribally focused or is um, managed by managed locally and develops relationships with other communities and other places. There was an oil spill in the mid '90s that happened here. We had to go out and um, pick up oil birds off the shores. And it was really interesting because all of a sudden we were asked to uh, measure uh, financially the value of our loss. So you all, you eat birds, uh, how much birds, how does this affect your subsistence and how much did that cost? And I think no one really knew how to answer that question. So basically they hired someone that just sort of put together this equation that said, yeah, okay, well, he called like two or three hunters. How much birds do you typically hunt? And he um, 
expanded that equation to to give a dollar figure for the loss of our com in our community uh, with the subsistence foods that were oiled. And I thought, wait a minute here, this is like totally wrong. Um, we need to collect our own data. So that incident sort of is what led to the Island Sentinel that presently exists going out and collecting the data, the Bering Sea Watch, where people are reporting what they see to the Ecosystem Conservation Office and they're sharing the information. This is sort of putting science back in the hands of uh, citizens, putting science back in the hands of community members, and hopefully putting science back in the hands of the next generation. Did we get a weather forecast today? Which which way is the wind coming from today? This way. Kind of seems like the wind's coming from that direction. Why is why is that happening? Where we are now really stems from looking at these gaps, uh, a gap between the United States government and the traditional community of St. Paul, an oil spill, and a gap between the people that were impacted by this oil spill and couldn't answer to their loss. They, they weren't equipped to do that. Children knowing about the environment, yet if they grew up and they were schooled in it and they got this degree, uh, there wasn't any place for them to work, hence the Ecosystem Conservation Office. So I think it was about 2008 was the first time we had a, a Bering Sea Days. And it was actually in spring when there was sea ice. It's time to like bring all of those things together and see what we can make and how we can link um, with other, uh, other young people in other communities. Um, and I think uh, the Bering Sea Days is, is just, it's a niche that's been, it's a niche that filled this gap and it opens um, opportunity for, for um, more work to be done. You've been listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. The show was produced by Sean Bogle and other members of the Wildlands Collective, edited by myself, Gregory Haddock. If you have not yet donated to the show, I would really like to encourage you to head over to patreon.com backslash wildlenscollective. And not only will it encourage you to be invested in our success, but will help us to do lots of amazing things. Your donation and support is so, so appreciated. Thank you. The show's music in this episode is brought to you by Blue Dot Sessions via Creative Commons Licensing. For additional show notes and a video of the Bering Sea Days produced by Sean Bogle, please head over to wildlensinc.org backslash EOC 187. I'm Gregory Haddock reminding you, as the great Kermit the Frog once said, it ain't easy being green, but it is important. See you next time on Eyes on Conservation.